Turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 10, Bible, Acts chapter 10. We are coming to a portion of the book of Acts, which focuses on the salvation of the Gentiles and the teaching that we have considered so far. We've seen the gospel, spread of the gospel, uh, certainly in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, and it is moving out to the uttermost parts of the earth. We get a hint of that as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 comes to Christ. But we're still in Israel. We're still uh, nearby, you could say, to Jerusalem. We have seen the ministry, early ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's not yet called Paul in the scriptures here. And then Peter... We're looking at uh, not his earliest ministry. He certainly had time in Jerusalem, but now outside of Jerusalem, he has come to Lydda, according to verse 32 in the previous uh, chapter, chapter 9, and then to Joppa. And that's where we left Peter as we ended last Sunday, verse 43. It says, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And that's not a tanning salon. <laughs> He's near the beach, but a tanner is someone who, according to one Bible dictionary, converts hides and skins into leather by soaking them in lime and the leaves and juices of certain plants. And apparently... That did not smell good. Uh, what uh, some comment about with relation to verse 43, and of course where Peter's he's staying here during this time, is not so much the smell, but the reality of Peter being with someone who is working with the hides of animals. You know, the Jews had laws about unclean things not touching unclean things, or ceremonially they would become unclean. The fact that he's staying here is, you might say, a step towards the Gentiles. Now, I think we could look at chapters 10 and 11 and say not only is he taking a step towards the Gentiles, but he's having them stay with him, and he's also preaching the gospel to them, and then by the end of chapter 11, at least the sequence that we're going to look at, Gentiles, those who are outside of the nation of Israel, are coming to faith in Christ. And of course, Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, go preach the gospel to every creature, but there was going to be a spread of the gospel, which sort of worked itself out over time, and eventually, and here we are seeing it in this chapter, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. I want to just draw attention to that. I asked you to turn to Acts chapter 10, and that's certainly what we're going to consider. But just look at chapter 11 for a moment. At the end of this sequence, verse 18 of Acts chapter 11, this is as Peter is telling the story back in Jerusalem. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Okay, so we've got Gentiles. Even in chapter uh, 10, we'll look at as well, there's a reference to the fact that God is pouring out the Spirit upon the Gentiles. Turn over just for a moment to Acts 15 and look at the first <clears throat> part of the chapter where Peter is speaking to the group that had gathered among them, Paul and Barnabas, the elders of the church of Jerusalem, the other apostles are there. 
And Peter, in verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So that's later on, and Peter is looking back, and he's talking about the time when the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, and they also are receiving the Spirit. He says that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then God gave them the Spirit. So back to Acts chapter 10, while the focus may be in chapter 10 on this man named Cornelius, there's something bigger going on than just the salvation of Cornelius. But this is the record of Cornelius's conversion, but it's not alone. That's the point I'm trying to make. So we're going to look at Cornelius, this interaction between Peter and Cornelius, the things that happen leading up to that. We're going to have to take some time with this chapter so we can't finish the story. But I'll just give an overview of the chapter so we get an idea of the story, and then we're going to look at it in detail. So as we look at the chapter as a whole, we first of all are introduced to Cornelius in the first part of the chapter and a vision that he receives of an angel who comes in answer to his prayer and sends uh, him, not just him, but servants of his to go get Peter. Okay, so he has a vision of an angel. In the end, the angel says he's come in answer to his prayer. And he tells Cornelius to send for Peter. He's never met Peter. He doesn't know Peter, but he just knows there's this person named Peter he's to send for. So they go. And starting in verse 9... As they're coming, that small little delegation of three comes to Peter. It says that Peter is praying, and he sees a vision. So you've got a vision that Cornelius had. Now Peter is having a vision, and Peter's is pretty interesting. Not that seeing an angel wouldn't be interesting, but Peter's has got uh, some interesting aspects, and it's repeated three times. And as you read the vision and you come to the end of the vision, and you say, what was that all about? Well, that's Peter's question too. Verse 17 says, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. So he has a vision. He doesn't quite know fully what it means. And then knocking at the gate and calling for him are these three Gentiles. And they introduce themselves. Peter receives them. By verse 23, they've told him about Cornelius, and he invites these three in to Simon the Tanner's household, and they stay the night. So, and these, these three are from Cornelius, so these three are from the home of a Gentile, and Peter's receiving these Gentiles to stay with him. That's a, that's a significant thing for a Jew to do this time in their history. Okay, following that, Peter gets up the next day and goes along with them and then meets Cornelius. And Cornelius tells him about the vision that he had and basically says, we're ready to hear what you have to say. We're ready for, you know, what the message that you have from God, Peter. And Peter, in responding to that request, then opens his mouth, starting in verse 34, and preaches the gospel to the household of Cornelius. And he draws attention to the fact that Christ is Lord of all, and that's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles as well. So Peter comes, and he comes to a Gentile home, preaches the gospel to them, and then as he is speaking, end of the chapter, verse 44, what happens? What's it say in verse 44? That the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Now, we saw in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fall at Pentecost. We saw him fall upon the Samaritans. 
So you've got Jews, Samaritans, Samaritans kind of being the link between Jews and Gentiles. Now we have Gentiles. So what is, what is God doing here? This is God who's at work. Well, he's saving those outside of the nation of Israel and doing really what he promised he would do. As he told his disciples that they would be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now unto the uttermost part of the earth. Caesarea is a step towards other parts of the earth, but it is where this Gentile centurion is, and it's where he comes and his household comes uh, to faith in Christ. I say his household. As we look at the chapter, we see that there's a lot more people there than just Cornelius who heard the gospel, who also had the Spirit poured out upon them. So again, this chapter focus might be this man Cornelius, but in a broader picture, this is the Gentiles and what God is doing to bring the Gentiles into the church to be a part of what he's doing at this time and, of course, in eternity. So we rejoice in God's salvation to all who believe. So let's look at the first part of this chapter. I want to read from verse 1 down through verse 23, and then we'll consider these two visions and what follows uh, Peter's vision to the point where they lodge with him. I, I wish I, I wanted to go through the whole thing. I think I just did to a certain extent, but there's uh, enjoyment, encouragement, and uh, truth in the details here. So let's look at it together. Starting in verse 1. It says, now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy or common. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for, and what is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he, and that is Peter, invited them in and gave them a lodging. And in my Bible, there's a division there in the middle of that verse. But it says, the rest of that verse says, on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Okay, so down through verse 23, we've got some of what takes place here leading up to the conversion of Cornelius. 
Luke begins this chapter giving us a description of Cornelius. We've actually had two descriptions, one by his servants in verse 22, which is consistent with what Luke records there in a couple of verses at the beginning of the chapter. It says there was a man at Caesarea. This is up on the coast, the northern coast above Joppa. It is a city that was built by Herod the Great as a tribute to Augustus Caesar. There were significant number of Roman soldiers there. The Roman governor would have been over those soldiers as a whole. The centurions would have been men who were sort of like someone compared it to non-commissioned officers over smaller groups of soldiers. We don't know exactly how many uh, Cornelius commanded. One suggestion is 80, but you're talking about a lot of soldiers, and we're told that he's a part of the Italian cohort. So this is possibly from Rome itself, but from Italy, these soldiers had come over, and they're uh, as a part of a garrison there in Caesarea, standing there for the Roman Empire for the purposes of the Roman Empire. Cornelius is one of the commanders. And we might get an indication as to where he's from based on what he is leading, this Italian cohort, but we're actually told in verse 2 that he's very closely connected with the Jews. Uh, he is, according to verse 2, a devout man and one who feared God. When we see that in the book of Acts, it's not just talking about the person's um, general attitude, but it could very specifically, and especially in the book of Acts, be talking about someone who is worshiping at the synagogue as a Gentile with the Jews. Uh, in other passages in the book of Acts, and we'll see as we go along, there are those who feared God, or they are God-fearers, and they would come and listen to the synagogue worship. They would participate. The only thing they wouldn't do is fully convert to being a Jew themselves. One person says it this way, god fear was the title given to the Gentiles who wanted to attend synagogue services and learn more about the Jewish religion. They forsook idolatry and observed the Sabbath and some dietary regulations, but they were not circumcised, which would be the mark that someone would take that would actually make them a part of the, the Jewish nation. The Jews still regarded them as unclean Gentiles, but they allowed them to sit in the back of the synagogue and listen to the services. How do we know that Cornelius is not a full convert? Based on chapter 11, and look at verse 2 and 3, Peter is going to get some criticism when he goes up to Jerusalem. It says, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Cornelius has not fully become a proselyte. He's not sitting among the Jews. He's not saying that he's a Jew. Instead, he's as close, someone has said, to a Jew as a Gentile could be, as, uh, as Jewish as a Gentile can be without ceasing to be a Gentile. Not only is he devout and one who fears God, but he's actually a generous man. Look at verse 2, the middle of the verse. It says, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he's giving of his own wealth to the Jews and probably others as well, but at least to the Jews, he's showing generosity for those who are poor. He's caring for them. It does suggest that he, in this chapter, based on the circumstances, that he is a man of wealth. He has personal attendance. He has slaves. Of course, he has soldiers under him as well. But he's not keeping all that money for himself. He's showing generosity to others, caring for those who are poor. And all of his household is following him. Notice that. It says he feared God with all his household. So he's actually leading his family and presumably his servants. But the thing that stands out in this chapter, and I would say as we hear the story of Cornelius, is in part his prayer. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, and prayed to God continually. He was a generous man. He was a God-fearing man. But he's a prayerful man. This word that is used 
and translated prayed here is a word that means to beg or to petition from the point of a supplicant, someone who's asking, just begging for something. But it says he prayed to God and he did so continually at a very base level. This could just mean that he's participating in the regular prayers that the Jews participated in as they prayed throughout the day. But based on what we see in this chapter, that he's actually praying in his house. This was a part of his personal life. He's a man of prayer. And notice in verse 3, it says, About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God. Now, we might move just into the vision, but I will point out the only other time we see the ninth hour of the day is in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, where it is said to be the hour of prayer at the temple. Later, Cornelius says in verse 30, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. So the vision that he receives comes in the context of his prayers. He's a praying person. And this is a testimony to us. We'll take some time to consider and I hope apply that. But we're drawing attention, uh, Luke draws our attention to the vision in verse 3. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. The timing, again, ninth hour of the day, about three o'clock in the afternoon. The vision that he receives is of an angel who, as I understand what he says here, he comes into his house. Now, a vision like a dream, is happen happening in the mind of the person who is having it. If it's a dream given from God, obviously God is presenting information or truth to the person. If it's a vision, if it's a dream, the person's asleep. If it's a vision, the person's awake. And that's what's going on. Of course, Cornelius is himself praying as this happens, and it's during his prayer that he begins to see this vision. And this angel comes, it seems that he comes into his house in the vision and calls him by name, which if you've ever had someone call out your name and you've never met them before, it is a little startling. But if it's someone in shining garments who knows your name in the context of prayer, this terrified him. Verse 4 says, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? So Luke calls attention to Cornelius's response, which was a focused attention. The idea of fixing your gaze is this person has your full attention. And the word that's translated uh, much alarmed is the idea of terrified. If you do a study on that word that Luke uses here, you can see it also in Luke's gospel when the disciples are uh, in a place, and Jesus appears suddenly. It says they're terrified because they thought they were seeing a spirit. So the terror that came over them, and then, of course, Jesus showed that he wasn't just a spirit, that he actually had risen from the dead, but it's that kind of feeling. The same word is used when the women saw the angel at the tomb in Luke 24. So just terrified at this person. Who is this? Shining garments, calling my name. And then the angel quickly says to him that he has no reason for alarm. He actually came in response to his prayers. Middle of verse 4, it says, And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. The word that's used here references a meal offering in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament. Uh, an offering that, that was combined with other offerings offered at the uh, altar of the temple and was burned up with the sacrifice. But what the angel is saying here is that your prayers and your giving have ascended up into heaven as 
sweet incense, you might say, to God. God has noticed them. He's taken notice of what you are doing, and he's taken notice of your words. And of course, the angel is here as a part of the answer. And when we look at the Bible, there are other times where this happens. If you read Daniel's uh, prayer in Daniel chapter 12, as he is praying, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, the angel who comes to him says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you gave your heart to understand this and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. As I was thinking about this passage and thinking about an angel coming in response to prayer, I went back to that in my Bible, and I was looking at that passage, and then I looked at the cross-reference, and it said Acts chapter 10. So yeah, there is a parallel here of an angel who comes in response to the words of someone. God hears, and God dispatches the angel. And what's interesting about the story is the angel doesn't come and preach the gospel. Later on in the chapter, we find Peter preaching the gospel. This is part of God's purpose in Peter's life, of course, with the apostles. It's not his purpose for angels to be preaching the gospel, although certainly they could. But no, this is God's purpose to send the angel to help Cornelius to recognize that all these prayers and all this giving, this is not unnoticed. I think this is encouraging to know that here... And we'll talk about the state of Cornelius's soul, but I believe this is a man who does not yet fully know the Lord through Christ, and yet God has his eye upon him and is hearing him. He's listening to him. Gives us encouragement that even the prayers of someone who does not yet know God, at least through Jesus Christ, God would listen to their prayer. And the answer, at least to this prayer, is to bring him to a full knowledge of him through Christ. But that's the reason Cornelius doesn't have to be alarmed at all. There's actually encouragement here in what the angel says. Beyond the encouragement at the end of verse 4, there's also direction the angel gives when he says, Now dispatch. I tend to think of that as a military translation. The word is just send, but Cornelius may have been used to dispatching people here and there based on his position as a centurion. It says, now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now, he doesn't give him an address. He gives him a city. He gives him a particular person, the name of that person, and his job, you might say if he got to Joppa, he could kind of smell the air and see where to, which direction to go if this guy's actively doing his business. But that's the direction. That's the direction that he gives to Cornelius as to what he is to do. Now, just before we leave this vision and leave what Cornelius has done that has brought this angel. I just want to encourage you that this is a picture in Scripture of how God does respond to prayer. God hears prayer. And he hears anyone who prays genuinely to him. Psalm 65, verse 2 says, Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. And so I just want to encourage you to look to the Lord in prayer, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at. Praying is the right thing to do. To call out to God, to ask Him, according to your heart's desire, and I don't believe that means that you can pray and ask for just anything to be just given to you, but especially when it comes to knowing God. And you could be here today and you don't fully know God, but you know there is a God, and I would encourage you, the right thing to do is to pray to God. And if you don't know God, say to God, teach me, God, who you are. Show me who you are. 
Now, I don't know the content of Cornelius's prayer, but I do think that we see, to a certain extent, something about the content based upon the answer. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, what is the answer? An angel comes, and he says, send for Peter, and Peter's going to come and preach a message, and what's going to happen to Cornelius? He's going to come to Christ. So what was the prayer? Was it for more light? Was it for understanding? We don't fully know other than we know that this is how God is answering his prayer. There are some who would suggest that Cornelius is already a believer based upon what is said of him. I don't believe that is true. Though the verses and the fact that God is answering a prayer of his is suggestive of something God would do for a believer. I mean, if someone is said to be devout, one who fears God, gives alms and prays to God continually, wouldn't you expect that such a person would know God and be, as we would say, saved? The reason I don't believe he is yet is in part that Peter has not come, he has not given the gospel. And if you turn over to chapter 11 for a moment, we're actually given some of the words which were spoken by the angel that Luke did not record in chapter 10. Okay, and if you know what it's like when you're hearing a story and more and more details come out as the story is told and things develop and you talk about whatever happened and there's just more detail that you understand later on. Well, we didn't see this in the first part of the chapter, but look at chapter 11 Verse 12, this is as Peter is describing what has happened, as the Spirit, verse 12, told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house, and he reported to us, that is, Cornelius reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Cornelius heard that, though it's not revealed in detail there in chapter 10. Some would say, well, Cornelius is sincere. He's giving alms. He's giving things to the poor. He's praying. Don't you think that that kind of sincerity merits consideration before God that he, that he should, should truly be saved already because of that? And I think the very point of this chapter and this story as it unfolds is it shows that a person may be sincere, but without Christ, they're not saved. Without knowing Jesus Christ and submitting to him as Lord, they're not born again. They're not believing. Leighton Talbert, in one of his classes on the book of Acts, said Cornelius is an illustration not of the sufficiency of sincerity for salvation, but the insufficiency of it apart from Christ and the gospel. In other words, I would look at Cornelius and say, if sincerity is all you need, I mean, this guy's saved, but he's actually not saved, even though he is that sincere. So God is sending the gospel message to him in answer to his prayers. One author said, it's a beautiful revelation of God's love. He is listening to the prayers of this unsaved man, observing his generous giving and leading him along to himself. God does not despise the untutored seeking of a needy soul. No, if someone's looking and longing and praying, God, show yourself to me. Will God hear that prayer? Yes. Will he send direction? Yes. I, I reference a man by the name of John, a friend of mine, who, and I think I've shared this before, who when he saw a woman who was a Christian suffering from cancer and yet retaining joy every single day, he realized she had something he didn't and he wanted, and he asked God to show him himself. And later on, John came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. But at that point in his life, all he knows is this woman who is joyful in the midst of her 
situation. She knows she's going to die. I want that, whatever that is. God opened his eyes to be able to see the truth and have that joy himself. So no, I don't believe Cornelius is a believer here, but he is sending Cornelius help. And he's not sending the angel to preach the gospel. He's sending, really, you could say this is a test of whether or not he, he, he is growing in faith. Does he have faith? Well, he's got to respond to this direction from God as the angel gives it. What's the direction? End of the ver or verse 5 and 6, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. So he's got something that he has to do in response to God has responded to his prayer. Now he's responding to the direction that God is giving. This is the next step that he needs to take. And so he does. Cornelius' response to this vision from God is to take and, and tell his servants to come. Verse 7, it says, as soon as the angel left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who are his personal attendants. He explains everything to them, verse 8, and sends them to Joppa. Here's what you need to remember. There's a tanner there. He lives by the sea. Someone, his name is Simon, and there's another person staying with him. His name is Simon, too. He's also called Peter. So with those specifics, they have enough to go on. They still have to ask directions when they get there, but they have enough to go on to go to Joppa. Again, they might be able to follow their nose, too based on what Simon the Tanner is doing that day. So verse 9, we move from this scene and Cornelius' response to the vision, and now we're following in verse 9, those three, the soldier and the other two slaves or servants of Cornelius, as they're on their way, verse 9 says, and approaching the city. Okay, so it's like they're coming up to the city, they're getting near to it. Now what's going on in the city? And we're drawing attention immediately to Peter and what he's up to. What's Peter up to? Well, interestingly enough, Peter is also praying. I say interestingly enough, this is a coincidence in one sense. But does God hear prayer? Does God pay attention to prayer? Of course he does. And in this circumstance, Peter is going up, it says, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, I don't think he's getting up a ladder, climbing on the roof tiles or whatever. I think this is one of those houses where there are probably steps up the side, and there's a flat area where you can actually sit on the roof, maybe overlooking the sea if he's by the sea. And he's going up there, the scripture says, to pray. That's the timing of the approach of these servants of Cornelius. And it's the sixth hour, not the ninth hour. It is the very next day. So this is noon of the next day. Peter goes up, it's noon, and he's hungry, verse 10 says. And he wants something to eat, and there's apparently preparations being made. I don't know what's on the menu for that day. It doesn't tell us, but it's while he's hungry, while he's praying, while they're making preparations, that suddenly he falls into a trance. Now, again, before getting into the vision, there's something here with regard to prayer. Later on, it's revealed that Cornelius was praying at the ninth hour. Now Peter's praying at the sixth hour. Was this Peter's practice? Uh, it's only giving us a singular instance of Peter's prayer here, not telling us that this was his custom or that this was his habit. But I do find it interesting that Peter is doing something that Jesus taught, and that is going apart getting to a place where you're not with other people in order to pray. In other words, there's something here about the place for prayer, which Jesus found on a mountaintop. He found out in the wilderness. He found, of course, in other places, but he told his disciples, when you pray, go into your closet or go into that inner room in the house where no one's going to disturb you. Peter found a place not to be disturbed up on the housetop. 
J.C. Ryle says, it's useless to say you have no convenient place to pray. Any man can find a place private enough if he's disposed. He references the Lord praying on the mountain, Peter on the housetop, Isaac in the field, Nathaniel under the fig tree, Jonah in the whale's belly. Now, he didn't go there on purpose, but that's where he found himself, and he needed to pray. But he said, any place can become a closet, a chapel, and a Bethel, or a house of God, and be to us the presence of God. Jonathan Edwards used to take his horse out into the woods, tie up his horse and go walking, He'd go down by the river and pray while he was out on walks. He was able to be alone with God and based on what I understand was praying out loud. That's one of the things that happens when you're not with other people. You have the freedom to be able to just talk out loud, which helps you with your concentration if you're praying. You're praying always in your head and you're praying where other people are. There's potential distraction. And if you're only praying in your head, I think there's also times where our mind wanders enough. We go different directions. But Peter is living his Christian life. He's living as a follower of Christ, as an apostle of Christ. But here, we would say certainly a good example, someone who's taking time to pray. I don't know what the time is for you. We can't be prayerless, though, and live obediently to the teaching of Jesus. We can't be prayerless. To be prayerless is to be ungrateful. To be prayerless is really to be proud. To be prayerless when we have opportunity to be with God and we don't spend time with God, to be prayerless means we're not enjoying him or his presence. To be prayerless means you're not confessing your sins to God. If you're not confessing your sins, you're likely not repenting of your sins. So are you like me, ashamed of prayerlessness? Whenever I see an example like this in Scripture and I see someone praying, I think, that's what I need. Lord, help me. And I don't know about you, but I need help to pray. I try to read in order to encourage myself with regard to prayer. I have a little book. It's got a short enough devotional. I'm reading just in the last week, trying to take some time to read through a brief devotional, a focus on Scripture, and then an encouragement to pray. I need that. Do you need that? As we come to, Lord willing, in March, our week of prayer, that's really what that week is uh, helping us, I believe, to do, is to encourage us as a church to be a praying church, to encourage each one of us individually to be praying people. We need to pray. Here's a disciple of Christ who's in the middle of the day. And with Cornelius, it was at three o'clock in the afternoon. There's no prayer meeting here. This is not a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting is important too. Being a part of praying with the people of God is important, whether it's Wednesday or other times during the week that we pray with other believers. That's important. That's not unimportant. But this is the personal life of Peter as he goes up onto the rooftop. Scripture says, pray without ceasing. We cannot pray continuously as an unbroken, constant prayer. That's not what Paul meant when he said, pray without ceasing. It's the idea of continually, so punctuating the day, throughout the day, taking time to pray. We have to give our attention to work and to other things in our life. And yet, even if we do those things without any prayerfulness, I think we're missing the point that Scripture is teaching us, that our Lord is teaching us to pray. Should you pray when you rise? The psalmist said early, I will seek you. Should you pray over meals? 
Someone said even the dog bows his head to eat something. But Christ gave the example as he blessed the food before he gave it to the crowd gathered. What about daily mercies? What about interceding for friends? What about praying when we spend time with one another? What about praying with our spouse? What about praying with our children? What about when we lay our head down at night? All these times are times for prayer. Is prayer a part of your life? Again, we're confronted just by Peter's example in verse 9 that he was a person of a prayer. He even said in his epistle, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Sober yourself, he said, for the purpose of prayer. Now, you might say, well, you're just harping on it. I'm, I'm encouraging all of us to spend time in the presence of God, which is what he's called us to, to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. There's delight in the presence of God. There's joy in his presence. Psalmist said, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Why don't I have any joy in my life? When was the last time you spent time with God? Well, Peter, spending time with God. And boy, does he have an interesting vision. At the end of verse 10, it says he fell into a trance, which is, if you just look that up in the dictionary, a state of profound absorption, a sleep-like state. The Greek word that Luke uses is ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy from in Acts 22, verse 17, it says, Paul found himself in a trance. Paul was in a trance too. This is nothing mystical. It's just the way in which God takes hold of the mind of the person to reveal something to them. Again, Peter's awake. He's praying. And as he prays, here's what he sees. And this is where it gets interesting. What does he see? Well, verse 11, it says, he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. So the sky opening up and suddenly a sheet, and don't think a bed sheet, it's much bigger than that. Another passage uses this same word for sheet and it translates it sail. So as big as a sail might be, but this is, seems like it's even bigger than that because of what it contains. But it's this great big sheet coming down it has four corners. It comes down to the ground, end of, end of verse 11. And in the sheet, as he's able to see the contents of the sheet, what's in this, it says in verse 12, there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Okay, Cornelius sees an angel. Go back to the Old Testament, Pharaoh saw corn and cows, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image. Another time he saw a tree in a dream, Peter sees a sheet. And in the sheet, all these animals. Various kinds of animals, four-footed animals, the word is tetrapod, crawling creatures. The base of that word is where you get herpetology, it's reptiles, so you've got that element, although it's translated crawling creatures here, and then birds, all kinds of birds. And apparently, based on what the Lord says to him, rise, Peter, or get up, Peter, kill and eat, Peter has an objection to eating the kinds of animals that he's seen. Look at the command. Here's what Peter hears. He sees the sheet. He sees all these animals. He hears a voice. Based on how he responds, he believes this is the Lord's voice. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So what is Peter seeing in the sheet? Well, he's seeing things that from a Jewish standpoint, he was not supposed to eat. He had read and had been taught uh, all of his life, apparently, based on what he says, Leviticus 11, which as all these animals are listed, there are birds, there are 
different sorts of animals. There's insects, all these things that he wasn't supposed to eat. And it doesn't say which ones. It just says that all these different types. And as he sees them, he recognizes there's unclean animals here. I can't do that. Now, it's just not a one-time vision. Notice in verse 16, excuse me, let's look at the Lord's response to his objection. Verse 15, it says, again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Okay, the implication is these animals are cleansed. You can eat them now. And that happens the second time the voice speaks. But then in verse 16, and this is where I got a little ahead of myself, but in verse 16, it says this happened three times. What happened three times? Well, there's a repetition of what he sees, his objection, and God's statement. A repetition of the animals, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. No, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord says what God has cleansed, don't call common. Don't call unholy. So it, it's repeated three times, verse 16, and then the object is taken up into the sky. So have you ever heard the statement, repetition aids learning? Repetition aids learning? Repetition aids learning? But in biblical visions, when something is repeated, that refers to certainty. This is going to happen, or this is what must happen. This is what you must conclude based on God saying it three times. There was a repeating of Pharaoh's dream, in part to reinforce the point. For Peter here, three times God is saying, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So something has to change in Peter's mentality. Now, if he you know, no longer sees the vision, he might be thinking, I wonder what's for lunch now. Right? I mean, what's Simon or his servant got cooking up downstairs? Does that have to do with that? And Peter is perplexed. Verse 17 says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. So he's thinking about it. He's puzzled. He's mystified. Pondering. Bewildered. Not sure what this vision actually means. What does this refer to? Does it mean a change in diet, or is it something else? And at that very moment that he is pondering that, notice what the next verse says, or the same verse. It says, Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked, for direction, asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Now, we're given some insight as to what their journey was like. Remember, they knew it was Simon the Tanner, by the sea, he's, there's a person lodging with him named Simon, who's also called Peter. Well, that gets them to Joppa. Doesn't say anything about what they smell. So maybe Simon the Tanner was taking the day off. He wasn't cooking anything up. And they just had to ask directions. There's a Tanner in this town somewhere. His name is Simon. Do you know where his house is? Yeah, go up to the house. There's a yellow dog up there. When you see the yellow dog, take a right. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get directions. They got good directions, though. And their good directions took them right to the gate of the house, right at the moment that Peter has ended the vision and is now thinking about it. Notice that. It says, behold, verse 17. So right as Peter's thinking about it, the men arrive, they appear at the gate, and they're shouting out, verse 18 says, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. Is there a Simon here? Yeah, this is Simon's house. No, not Simon. I want Simon, who's also called Peter. Is there a Simon staying here? And as they're calling out, Asking for Simon Peter. Peter's still upstairs on top of the roof, rather. Verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, he's still thinking about it. Still meditating. What was that all about? And I saw it three times. And then the Spirit of God speaks to Peter. Now here's where the cults get it totally wrong. 
They don't look at passages like this where the Holy Spirit actually speaks. They say the Spirit is some kind of a force. He's not a force. He's a person. He speaks. He teaches. Other times in the book of Acts, he has spoken. And it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is speaking to Peter. And he tells him, behold, three men are looking for you. But get up go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Notice verse 19 when he says three men. He doesn't say Gentiles. He doesn't say Jews. He just says three men. So Peter now understands that there's a delegation looking for him. Doesn't know. all. all have to remember, Peter at this point, all he's, he's had a vision and it's a strange one, and he's trying to figure that out. And the Spirit says, there's three men looking for you. Go. That's all he knows. He doesn't know anything about Cornelius. We do, but he doesn't. And so when he comes down, verse 21, it says, Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? It's just, there's no reference point that he has other than the Spirit has told him at this point to go with them. So then they introduce the reason for why they've come. Verse 22, it says, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Okay, now, one of the things I think becomes clear based upon their statement. And I don't know if you noticed this as we as, as we looked at it back in verse 4, when it says, in the midst of Cornelius's vision, as he looks at the angel, and the, the phrase is, he said, what is it, Lord? You see that? And Lord is capitalized. You see that in your Bible? Looking at your Bible? Verse 4, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? Now, some would suggest that Cornelius is confused at this point. He actually thinks he's talking to God. Now, I would suggest, based on what is said in verse 22, that Cornelius knew he was talking to an angel. It was a holy angel, but it was still an angel. It wasn't God himself. He's not talking to Jesus, although Jesus many times in the book of Acts is referred to as Lord. This is the word kurios that Cornelius uses, but that word could be used with someone is talking to Cornelius and says, my Lord, and is talking to him as an earthly master. It could also be for a government official where you call that person Lord. I'm just trying to clarify that Cornelius knows that he has been spoken to by an angel and directed by the angel to send for Peter. And the particular focus as Peter comes back, notice in the end of verse 22, that was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, Peter, to come to his house. That means Peter's got to go to Caesarea and then hear a message from you. Now, if you're listening to this from Peter's standpoint, again, the word in verse 22, God-fearing man, would have had a reference point in Peter's mind. This is a Gentile. Not a Jew, this is a Gentile. He's a God-fearer. The other thing I think would have been apparent as he's just interacting with these three is that they're Gentiles. You got a soldier, you got these two servants. And for a Jew, as you look at the pages of the New Testament and even the book of Acts to this point, the Jews did not have the kind of interaction that Peter's about to have with these Gentiles. In other words, if Peter's going to interact with the, these men as normally the Jews would interact with Gentiles, Peter might say out of an act of kindness, yeah, there's a place to stay down the road, or hope you guys can find a place to stay tonight. He's certainly not going to invite them in and eat with them. 
and he's not going to invite them in to lodge with him. The Jews don't even have any dealings with Samaritans. They don't have dealings with Gentiles on this level. So again, back to chapter 11, as Peter is criticized, look at chapter 11 and verse 3. Here's the criticism. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You had a meal with them. That's a problem. Okay, back to chapter 10, verse 23. So Peter's had this vision. Now he has these three talking to him, introducing who Cornelius is. And what does Peter do? This had to be an act of faith on Peter's part. Coming to an understanding that God was at work, and God very definitely is at work here. And what did the Spirit say to him? Get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. These men have come because they've been directed to come by God. But this is new territory for Peter. And yet he invites them in. And he gives them a lodging. They can stay overnight. Probably share lunch and the rest of the day with them. Now, that might not be seem all that significant to us, but for Peter, and you know what he gets the criticism when he gets back to Jerusalem, this is no small deal. And what is happening is in the life of Peter and through Cornelius, God is breaking down a boundary. And that boundary was between the Jewish people and the Samaritans back in chapter 8, but now he's breaking down the boundary between the Jews and the Gentiles. And through salvation, he's going to bring them together and bind them together in the church for his own glory. See, God is at work here. He's at work in ways that we might not always expect. He's not always at work in the people that we might think he is, but he is indeed at work. And if I could make another application, when is he at work? in the lives of his people, and even in the lives of those who do not yet know him, at a time when they are praying to him and when they're seeking him, God is at work. Again, there's no prayer meeting in this chapter, but there is prayer, and God loves to work through prayer. And through history, in the history of revival, in the history of the church, he works by prayer. Thomas Brooks said, God loves to load the wings of private prayer with the sweetest choices and chief blessings. Ah, how often has God kissed a poor Christian at the beginning of private prayer and spoke peace to him in the midst of private prayer and filled him with light and joy and assurance upon the close of private prayer. So there's blessing in the prayer itself in terms of fellowship with God, but in terms of what God is doing for the salvation of Cornelius and his household. And we'll see later on the friends that have gathered. There's a whole bunch of people that come to Christ as a result of, here's this man praying, seeking God. Here's another person praying. God brings them together. And he's actually doing something wonderful in the church for his own glory. And how is it happening? It's happening through prayer as God works. God hears prayer. He hears the prayer of his apostle here. He hears the prayer of an unbelieving Gentile who does not yet know him. And how does he answer Cornelius? Well, how he's answering Cornelius is by bringing the gospel to him. Because God is not only a God of Jews, he's also a God of the Gentiles. And he loves sinners. And he is breaking down this wall. You'll see it broken down in this chapter, and Peter's going to see it broken down in a major way. I love a little story that I read, and I'll close with this. I think it was um, shared in one of the commentaries that I read. It's the father of a preacher named Harry Ironside, who was talking about his own salvation. And he was trying to quote from that portion of Peter's vision. And it was in a different translation, but he, he was trying to remember the exact wording of what it said when Peter sees this vision of all these creatures. 
And he's like, what was that word? And someone who's listening to him asked him, what are you talking about? He's talking about that vision that Peter had, the things that he saw. And the person said, oh yeah, it's creeping things. Yeah, that's it. Creeping things. He said, I was just a creeping thing. And yet God was willing to rescue and save me and forgive me of my sins. And it was just his way of humbly expressing, I didn't deserve, and none of us ever do, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. But the blessing of Abraham, praise the Lord, is not only on the nation. It's on all the nations through Christ. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray that even as we've gathered here today, if there's someone who does not yet know you, someone like Cornelius even, I pray that they would be willing, even looking at his example, to pray and ask for your direction and your showing them who you are through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you are unfolding uh, through the book of Acts for us an understanding of how the gospel spread. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you sent Philip out to the desert for just one person. And now you're orchestrating a whole series of events, visions and circumstances and interaction of people just to bring the news of salvation to this man's household. If we were to tell our story, Lord, it's a wonderful thing that you've worked in our lives if we believed in Christ and how you brought the good news to us. You may have brought it to us through our parents if we grew up in a home where our parents were believers, but at some point, Lord, we could tell some stories of just how you brought the good news to us through a friend who loved us enough to tell us the good news, maybe through just a copy of the Bible handed to us, or maybe a gospel tract or conversation, or in some way, Lord, you opened our eyes. And we do pray, Lord, that you'd use us to sow the seeds of the gospel in the lives of others. For the sake of your name, for the sake of the salvation of those souls, that they might have eternal peace with you, rest in you, life in you, forgiveness of sins in you, for the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.